Can you imagine how different your life is if you imagine and give yourself an A, I am going to do well. I know my intention is to do good on this project, on this relationship, on this thing. And starting from the step, from, from that premise that I am going to do good instead of I'm going to mess it up. Welcome to today's episode of Invested Success. If this is the first time you're tuning in, this is a show where we interview experts, creative thinkers, entrepreneurs, millionaires, artists, and more on how we can invest our focus and time to create the maximum compounding rewards so that we get an excellent return on our investment and can design and lead the life of our dreams. So if you want to be an incredible success story and lead the life you envision, this is a show you're definitely going to want to tune in. Today's guest is Anne Mulatala, who started her career as a singer, then became a very high-powered, successful executive at a fashion brand you might have heard of called Louis Vuitton. She shares her life working in Paris. And then we dive into why she decided to break out on her own to start her own communications consulting business. And if that weren't enough, she's also a yoga and meditation teacher by night. So she is just bursting with interesting information and advice. And it was so wonderful having this conversation with her where she lives in Switzerland. Before we get started, I want to loop you in on a little announcement which is we are about to wrap our 30th episode, which brings us to the conclusion of the first season of Invested Success. So exciting, I know. I'm going to be taking some time off to travel in 2022, pandemic permitting to Thailand and Europe. And in the interim, I'm also going to focus on making season two an incredible season for you. You are actually going to have an opportunity to help me craft season two into the exact show that you want to watch and listen to. I am going to be sending out a listener form and I just want to know who we should have on the show, what topics you want to hear about. I want to make this show something you love and want to listen to because you are what this show is all about, is helping you achieve your accomplishments and dreams. So if you want to be entered to win a $50 gift card and help us make season two of Invested Success amazing, please send me an email at hello at moneyselfmade.com. Again, that's hello at moneyselfmade.com so that you can fill out our guest survey, be entered to win a $50 gift card, and also help us make season two incredible. So it seems like a win-win all around for everybody with that one. I want to know your guest suggestions. I want to know what topics you want to hear about. While we're on the topic of feedback, if you want to also drop your thoughts in an iTunes review, I would love to hear it. Now is the time to let us know what you're thinking and how we can do better or what you already like so we can do more of it. Please help me welcome Anne. But first... Please remember to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube and hit subscribe wherever you're listening so that we can signal to the iTunes podcast gods to surface our show to more people so we can help create more incredible success stories. I can't wait to make the next season of the show incredible for you. And without further ado, please help me welcome Anne to the show. So I spent the better part of 20 years working in retail, wholesale, PR, communications, and then with add-ons of channel management and stuff like that. And then I, I was always very interested in yoga. I've been a yogi for a long time. 
And then I got into loving kindness meditation and then into mindfulness. And I decided to become certified both as a yoga teacher and as a, as a meditation and mindfulness teacher with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brack. And so the more I studied, the more I sort of let um, my sort of interest in, in those areas um, evolve, the more I realized that there was an interesting crossroads to look at life and to look at business and the future of work, um, mindful communication and, um, and other things like this with, a, with an eye of, of mindfulness. I love that. That's actually very much, I think, what this show is about. What are a few call outs in how mindfulness, meditation, yoga, and things that maybe people in the corporate world might consider sort of woo-woo actually have enhanced your professional and business life? Mm. I was actually listening to one of your other episodes um, this morning with the yoga teacher from that place called Vivify. She sounds fantastic, by the way. Um, I am going to, I'm going to quote something she said, which really resonated with me. It, you know, I think that when you practice a lot of yoga and you start practicing a lot of meditation, even if it's not mindfulness meditation, if you go um, transcendental meditation, Vedic um, and, and others, you start looking or noticing the contents of your own mind. You start coming into integrity, so to speak, or coming into contact with what could be your integrity. Uh, that means, and by integrity, I mean the way that you and only you would like to be living your life. And I think that there's a lot of our time that is spent adjusting to culture. So whether that's the understanding from our work environment, from my friends and family, or any other forms of, um, of culture that's dominant near where you are. And in so doing, in, in, in adapting, because that's what we like to do as, as human beings, we oftentimes forget what it is that we want. And so essentially what happened with me, the more I sort of got into this at the weekend, in the evenings, outside of a very, very busy work where I was traveling all of the time and we're talking really long distance. We're talking like, you know, New York, Tokyo and, <laughs> and that kind of um, flights, 17 hours, not funny. Um, you start realizing that there are things that you know, may need to change. And so I think that um, mindfulness, yoga and meditations are, are really interesting tools to really sort of um, get intimate with ourselves in a way that's very unique, that cannot be res um, um, compared to the person who's next to you on the mat or on the cushion. And that generally trans starts a journey that's likely to be transformational because once you know what it is that you want, it's very hard to continue doing something that you don't want. You have a really impressive background as well. It looks like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you uh, worked for Louis Vuitton. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say his full name. <laughs> <laughs> Christian Louboutin. Yes, I was, I was with Louboutin for, for 17 years. Wow. Okay. And how did that come to be? And, and what was that experience like? And how did that sort of corporate path lead you to mindfulness? And, and where did you stumble upon those two things to combine the two? I mean, I honestly landed there very much by chance, but then you have to believe in chance. That's not my case. Um, I was a singer. I was a singer songwriter and I, I moved from Geneva, Switzerland, which is where I'm currently uh, located and where I didn't live for <laughs> the, the, the foreseeable future. Um, so I was located in Geneva and I moved to London to pursue a music career. And I randomly um, moved into a flat with three others. And one of my flatmates said, hey, you're looking for a job. 
you've worked in retail, fancy shoes. <laughs> and this was in, in 2000 and no one really knew Louboutin. So imagine spelling his name and spelling my last name. That was a real fun ride. And so I started there um, in retail. I was a, I was a Saturday girl and um, it certainly wasn't corporate. That's for sure at the time. And it was a franchise. So I worked first for the franchise and I started doing PR um, because there was a need. There was someone who was often not in the office. So I started doing the work just because, you know, there were phone calls to be taken care of and, and people weren't happy. So I essentially was facilitating whatever was needed doing the office. And then from one thing, I then met Christian, then he employed me directly and then so on and so forth. So I became general manager in the UK and started building the, um, building the business because I saw a real potential and I was in a very unique position because I was doing, I was overseeing all of the operations within one country. So obviously I had worked in retail since I was in my early twenties. I started doing wholesale, which I really, really enjoyed. And, and I was doing PR at the same time. So I was able to really tell the stories sort of very fluidly from one side to another. And I think that having no idea whatsoever about this, I was effectively breaking silos that exist in other companies by freely sort of expressing um, stories about Christian because I had direct access to the designer as well. I had direct access to, you know, the head of the factory and, and so I was able to sort of really bridge these three. And, um, and this was also a time where luxury was really booming and developing. This was the whole, this was the big sex in the city moments. Um, and, and Christian was someone who was always incredibly dedicated to his work and to his clients. So whether that was the clients in the stores, whether that was the wholesale clients, he spent like a real big, big portion of his time, um, just getting to know people and spending time and really developing relationships. And so as things went on, um, I took on more work and then they started putting more um, PR incomes on my office because I was English speaking and the parents office wasn't so fluent. And then, and then things, <laughs> and then things kept on developing and that's how I ended up being, um, head of global communications for, for, um, from about 2013, no, 2011 until 2017 when I left. And so meditation and mindfulness weren't really a choice or something that I saw at the time whatsoever, but I was really very, um, I, I was getting into yoga a lot. And I think that's also when yoga was really on the up in London. And then I moved to New York in 2013 and there I had access to amazing teachers. There were studios like every four meters. I'm joking, but you know, and so it was really, really easy to sort of delve further in the practices. And um, I was able to maintain this, which would have been very difficult if I'd been in a European city, I think, at the time. What an exciting story. That's so fascinating. I can't, I can only imagine it must have been a really exciting time, especially to be in fashion. But, and so then you branched off since and have gone into consulting on your own. Am I getting that correct? But for full disclosure, I lost quite a few people in my family. I lost both my parents, a cat. Um, my father's ex-wife, my dad's husband over a period of four years. And I think that this coupled with a huge amount of travel, big responsibilities, the company kept on doubling in size, like every 12 to 15 months or something. And so we went from being tiny to what is now almost a $3 billion um, company 
although I'm, I'm quoting this, but you know, I'm not very au fait with the figures um, <laughs> at the moment. And so, um, so it's important to note that one of the reasons why I stepped out um, of the corporate environment is a, I didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, the, the pace was too fast. It was too far. And I had been flirting with burnout for a couple of years, which I wasn't aware of because at the time I barely remember anyone saying the word burnout. And even when I heard it, I didn't understand what it was. So, um, and that's quite interesting because I was managing people who under me, one or two of them over the years, I saw became a little bit unstable, but I was keeping, I had like a sort of a mama bear so I think <laughs> stands and I was really trying to look out for for their well-being and so I was lucky that under me uh, no one sort of ended up in, in the situation but I also noticed that this was not something that was necessarily very well managed above me at the time perhaps because we were in a culture of keep going growing 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 we can do this and um and I was like you know what no that's that's not for me anymore but it was a, it took me about a year to actually exit because by the time I made the decision I had been there for so long there was a lot of management of both my own expectations about how I was going to live um where I was going to live <laughs> I had lived in London New York Paris and I wasn't sure where to go so it, it took a lot of took a lot of time to manage that I'm I'm really glad you bring that up because I think burnout is an epidemic, especially in the corporate world. I've definitely burned out. I've seen people burn out. Um, one of our guests on the podcast, who I think you would really like, talked about her own experience and how it's just so not worth it because once you you do cross that line, it, coming back from it takes so long, um, and the sacrifices you make in like mental health and physical health are just really terrible. So, did you have any tactics that you and maybe mindfulness is part of this? Uh, you deployed to help prevent that or did you actually have to like recover a bit after this uh, corporate experience? Such a good question. Um, no, I, I feel like I realized that something was wrong, even though I couldn't call it for what it was. Um, although it, let's put a pin in that. I'll come back to it. There's something else that may have been going on as, as in the background as well that I wasn't aware of. So I put a lot of time and energy in fighting this, not even knowing what I was fighting against. And um, recently, I don't know whether you've come across this book called Burnout by um, the Nagoski sisters. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. And so I heard one of them, or I think the two of them being interviewed by Brené Brown, which was an exceptional, exceptional interview. And one of them was explaining that, of course, um, anything that's going to help us nurture and calm the parasympathetic nervous system is going to help you coming out of that fight, 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 flight, freeze mode. But I think the reason why burnout is so um, pernicious um, at the moment is because it's the low level constant stress that we are under that actually erodes at the normal coping mechanisms. So I did find that I pushed myself to do yoga and exercise in general, like two, three, four times a week, wherever I could fit it in. Also respecting my body's energy levels because it was telling me when it was okay or not okay to exercise but I also realized that I would do um, massages and facials so I found other ways to nurture myself and that's I heard from um, Emilia Nagoski that this was one of the ways that you can sort of also go about it anything that feels nurturing and safe and I, I remember being actually in in Mumbai after having gone to 
Hong Kong um, with Christian and finishing a really long trip that had been very, very intense, really exhausting on my nerves and going for an amazing, amazing um, facial and out there it was Ayurvedic products and everything was fresh and these sort of gave me some amazing um, jasmine and tuberose flowers. And I literally was like, oh my God, I need this so badly. I think I cried at the beginning. I was like, I was so thankful to be able to be, you know, physically held so good and sort of being able to relax. And there was a lot of kindness around as well um, in, in that particular place. So that really sort of helped nurture this. And so I tried anything basically that I could get my hands on that felt good. That is extremely wise. Actually, it's funny. I was getting a pedicure. Like I never get pedicures, but the woman who was giving me one, it was also luxurious and amazing. She actually talked about how a pedicure brought her back from a very deep depression. And there was just something about like that physical touch um, and the self-care element. So that really resonates. So you've burned out before. Yes, I burned out in my 20s. I would, I think you could definitely call it burnout. Um, so I, I don't know how familiar you are with the fire movement. I actually wasn't familiar with it when I was in my corporate career. But for some mm-hmm. reason, I was very determined to save like 50% of my income. And Oh, I've heard about this on your show. Yeah. Yes, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I think I just have anxiety and therefore like, have to save a lot. I did discover the fire movement. I was like, oh, there's other people that are like me. Um, But the problem is, is I was working really hard in social media, which we now know causes depression. But at the time, those studies weren't really out or done. I don't know if you've heard about the whistleblower on Facebook and all that. Yes. Interesting stuff. I know her actually. Um, And so I was definitely working 12 hour days, like low, low level stress because Twitter never sleeps, right? And then simultaneously, I wasn't doing any of that self-care stuff. I, in the beginning, I was, but um, I, I had a commute that was about two hours each way. So that had like etched out, I know. And then I had the, the social media, like constant marketing, corporate job, plus the commute. So that stopped me from doing things like yoga um, and exercise. And I think if I had kept those kinds of practices going, I maybe could have prevented it. But it ultimately was the best thing that ever happened to me because I did decide to leave San Francisco and the tech world for a while I came back but I met my husband a couple of months after that and um, we fell in love and it was very like fairy tale happy ending but I had to lay in bed for you know two weeks just like crying Um, and and the weirdest thing about it was that I didn't know it was happening kind of like what you said I didn't know what burnout was or and the feeling of it was was not like suddenly I was sad it usually became like I was feeling angry or I felt really underwater. Like I felt really disconnected all of a sudden. So I wasn't able to sense that, you know, this was depression and this was burnout coming on. Now I, now I take, I take better care of myself. I learned my lesson the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah. I found actually, there was a a book I bought when I was on holiday in Thailand. It's actually right there. It's called the giving way to happiness. And I wasn't even sure why I was buying this American book in Thailand, it cost a bomb for like a, you know, I don't know, a paperback. Um, but in the middle of that book, I found a very interesting four part description of what burnout is. And it is something that people who are very empathetic tend to go through. So the people who are able to really leave the job at 6 p.m. and sort of leave it behind are less likely to be suffering from it. And I certainly had shouldered too much for too long for other people. Um, and it's also, I recognize that while it was, it's prevalent in the industry that I was in. So it was advertised as such. It wasn't 
just in my company. It was it was happening in in many other um, places around. Um, but I think that what was particularly interesting is the sense of um, when my when I felt like my values were being contradicted at work, and that seems to be something that's a moment of recognition that was um, specified in in this book. And so I, I feel like it's a, for anyone who's thinking, am I, am I not? Um, I really recommend that you give this book a, a look over and find this definition for yourself and see where you're at. So I was really, I was in, in zone three <laughs> out of four. And I certainly have, uh, there's two people um, who went through burnout after I left the company. One of whom who was really still recovering from it last time I saw her in, in February, 2020. And, and I could see how deep and dark it went for her. And it's certainly something that I hope that we can all support each other in preventing. Because, so I don't know what happened for you, but I know that uh, later in my consulting career, I actually had to pull a couple of my clients on the side and have a conversation and say, listen, I'm, I'm worried because I see, I see the look, I see the frazzled look, the you're not sleeping, you're worried. And, and sort of, I noticed the behaviors and, and one of them actually literally had to, it, within less than three or four days that I spoke to her, she just went away and just went to a retreat for, um, I can't remember if it was a week or 10 days because she was really close. So anyways, we can look for, it's hard uh, to have as a conversation, certainly not pleasant, but it's really important to be really open and talk about it. I'd also love to ask how you protected your direct report. That's very noble uh, and very impressive. What were some of your strategies there? Yeah. The thing about the direct reports, I think it's, um, it's something that happens when, when you try to create a, a specific kind of culture and you then discover, which happens a lot in, in companies like the one that I was in, the culture is different in every country. So let's say that you've got, you know, a HQ, but then you have X amount of different um, other local HQs in, in 15, 20, 25 markets, each of them is going to have a specific culture. And so I was in a situation where I had direct reports in, in the US, in the UK, in Russia, in Japan, in Hong Kong, in China, um, in Dubai, in France. I think that's it. And then we had, and then we had agencies um, looking after PR and communication in, in other markets. And so what I did want to do originally is try to make us feel like a team. Because when I first entered that company in 2000, there was a real us versus them that was happening across the, the channel between France and the UK. It was, oh yeah, but we can't do this because, you know, the French don't let us do that. Or so, and I, and I then heard this between the Europeans and the Americans. So when I became the head of a group that was across continents, I really wanted to make us feel like, you know, a real tight knit group. And in so doing, I was developing a culture that was different from their local HQ and, and, and the head office. And so whenever I found that there was something that was happening that was not necessarily going to serve them and that was going to potentially impede their progress or their, their project, I did as, as much as I could to help them be the best that they could be. Um, I certainly wasn't the perfect boss, so that's not, <laughs> do not try to think that's what it was. I made lots of mistakes and, and some people did not think me the best boss ever. Um, but at least the intention really was there to, to help people be the best they could be to serve and to, and to do as best they could for, for the company and, and for, and for Christian, who was always a very thankful and uh, very kind boss himself. 
yeah, I can only imagine. I'm extremely impressed that you were able to manage a team of that size and uh, in those various locations. So <laughs> hat tip. <laughs> it certainly prepared me for Zoom. I can tell you that much. <laughs> you're ready for the pandemic. I can imagine. I'm really excited to ask you about this adventure of going out on your own. Um, But before I do, do you have any advice for somebody looking to get into a corporate career or succeed in a corporate career? Good question. But listen, I didn't try to get into a corporate career. So um, the first thing that I would say to someone is be yourself Um, and try to remember who you are, even as you enter a corporate career. And listen to your instinct as much as you can nurture that sense of connection to yourself. Um, Because it's when we turn that off um, that we make mistakes or that we potentially go down the burnout route and and other other choices that um, would be better not made (laughs) are then made. So really, in, in whatever way that makes sense to you, just really nurture your connection to to who you are and, and remember that. And seek people who enjoy who you are. Excellent words of wisdom. I love that. Um, and so did you, by the way, so you didn't want a corporate career. What were your aspirations, you know, in your youth? Was it to be oh, a singer? I wanted to be a singer. And I think that probably was very helpful when I got into fashion that I absolutely did not care about fashion. I had no particular interest. It took me a few years to actually get into get into fashion, but also... It's, it's interesting and complicated when you are um, really very, very far down low the corporate ladder in a small company being paid really poorly at the beginning. I mean, my first job, I was paid £13,000 £13, a year. So that's, I don't know, $18,000. <laughs> uh, it was hard to eat at the end of the month for both me and my flatmate. He was a journalist. Um, but it gave me a really sort of... Um, it's sort of a freshness because I wasn't trying hard to fit in to the fashion world because really I just cared about singing. Um, so I did really like to do a good job and I was really good at retail and, and, and looking after clients. Um, and I really enjoyed doing the rest of, of the work that I did beyond that. But at the same time, it wasn't the be all and end all of my life. And that really did, I think, make a difference to, to who I was. And it also became massively exciting because I was always into soul, jazz, and R&B, and neo-soul. So as what was sort of fringe back in the 2000s became sort of mainstream, I just suddenly saw all of these artists that I absolutely adored be opportunities, you know, people we could dress. So I, I had the chance of meeting some of my heroes. I was chatting to Mary J. Blige at an amazing dinner event in LA. I had dinner once Pharrell Williams with Christian, although I was feeling really poorly that night, so I wasn't my best self. But so it was really fun because suddenly the world that I had wanted to be a part of in a way sort of came <laughs> and sort of touched the world I, I had become a part of by, by chance. It was really fun. It sounds like a blast. <laughs> that was a fun part, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> so when you ventured on your own, I mean, that's definitely an interesting, intimidating thing to do uh, after a corporate career. What, uh, how did you approach that and what inspired you to, obviously, like aside from self-care, which is really quite critical. I think that one of the first things that I noticed because, so I was in a very unique situation when I moved from London, I was a general manager. So I was looking after all of retail and wholesale and global comms. Um, So I, I needed to split the two roles, but when I made that move, um, cause we were launching beauty and the beauty business was, was based in, in New York city. So that was a, one of the reasons why I was, I was relocating there, 
But effectively, every time I moved, we had to change the structure of the teams around me. And that meant that some of the people that were, let's say, my second in command on the digital and the PR front in the UK suddenly were less so because I was moving to New York. And when I moved from New York to Paris, that was the same. So the reason why I went on my own without the desire of building a company with other people at the beginning was just because I didn't want to have the responsibility of and also be have the freedom of deciding where I want to be. And I think that for people like me that became executives around that time in the fashion industry, I'm I'm a quick start. I'm, you know, I can very happily work anywhere. Give me a notebook and a phone. Then if you upgrade me to a laptop and a video cam, I can be on the go very easily. So I was a, a I was a digital nomad before that was a term. And I was very interested in the future of work. And I realized that companies were eventually going to have to follow the talent. And I, without wanting to call myself a talent in that sense, that was what the industry called it. I realized that it would be more interesting for me to find my purpose, my location, um, you know, really what was going to be the big motivator for me and then decide how to build it. Now, I want to say recently I heard a very interesting um, podcast interview. I sadly don't remember the, the name of the lady, but I can find it after. She's a copy. She's got a copywriting business. And it, what I did not foresee happen is when I left Louboutin, I was like, I'm going to do something really different and my life is going to be different. And it's true. I did that. I was very purposeful as to how I was spending my time, but I also replicated to a large extent the work I was doing before, but instead of doing it for one company, I mean, technically it was always group companies. I was doing it for people with a different name on the door. The rest though was very similar and it took me three years. So I would say 2017 to 2020 to realize, oh, okay. So basically I'm just, of course it's evolving and also I've become a mindfulness teacher. So my own approach has shifted with that. But essentially, I still had replicated my old job in lots of ways. And I, I suddenly saw that and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I need to make some further changes to make sure that this, this fits me a little bit more. And so that's, that's the work that I've been doing in the last year, year and a half. So as to how I approached it, and I think that given the type of um, podcast that you host, I approached it um, knowing what money I had in the bank. But I also was gambling on what I thought was coming next. And obviously I was very, I had done all the research. So I act quickly, but I'm, I will have done a lot of research beforehand. And I had made the decision to move back to Switzerland because I was in France at the time and I didn't want to be in France to, to launch my business. And just because I'd never wanted to live there. So I thought, bah. Also, other people try to come to Switzerland to launch a business. So eh, I have a passport. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so I'd done the research and I knew what I was doing, but I did take risks. And on a few occasions, I, I wish I had been a little bit more careful uh, with the finances because I had clients who continually paid me late. And so if everybody always paid on time, I would have cruised through um, those first couple of years and sadly, on occasion upon occasion, even though I had great relationship with the businesses, so far, I only have clients that have been incredibly happy with the work I've done. However, there's still a prevalent culture that, you know, you pay the freelancer, you pay the consultant, 
whenever you've paid anybody else that needs paying. And that is something that I have a really, really, really big problem with. Um, so I would say to anyone who's considering going out on their own, really do listen and do the the, the financial research to make sure that you are, as Tony Robbins says, you know, unshakable and that you have as much on the side as possible, because sadly, you will need to make do with, you know, with people um, not paying on time. Although I hope this is something we can eliminate at some point very soon. Yes, I completely know what you're talking about. I was a, a consultant in digital marketing by, I wouldn't say accident. I wanted a corporate career in like 2008, but that was when I graduated and entry level wasn't really hiring. So I had to venture out and start my own consulting business. Um, and I never really ever wanted to go back for that particular reason, the like chasing clients around. Um, however, I also didn't know how to charge either. So I can't even believe like what my hourly was that I was charging them. I was, you know, very green, of course, but at least you also have to know how to price yourself, I think is really important. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. And um, so this year, I decided to um, add an extra certification to my current um, and to become a um, certified coach. So I'm studying with Martha Beck. I'm graduating on Thursday. I'm very excited. Uh, And the course is unbelievably brilliant. So I'm very grateful. And what I've noticed with all of my peers, um, and we all have a very different background and lots and lots of experiences with uh, all of us combined, in that there's really a discussion around worth and value. And I kept on going back and forth between worth and value. And the thing is, it's not just how much you charge. It's how you charge, when you charge, how you set your own boundaries. And it's very interesting because earlier this summer, I decided to make a break and let go of uh, a few clients because I needed to take a longer break. I worked really hard throughout COVID since 2020 because I was really trying to help my clients not close shop because it was looking really difficult for some of them. Um, And I'm really proud of the work that we did together. So there was certainly no, no bad feeling involved, but I did notice that I really had let myself down in some ways because I had let people, and it was my responsibility, not just that I had let people accrue debt with me and I think that it was a desire which a lot of other people may have felt as well during this time to continue working, to help people through a hard patch, to see projects through. I think there's a lot of desire for me to really do great work. But in doing so, I was letting myself down another way. So I was certainly charging at my price, which was calculated depending on where I live, my combined experiences, the extra um, certifications I was gaining. So it never veered or changed much. However, I made certain mistakes that made me uncomfortable at a level that I didn't necessarily see coming. And that sort of backfired for me. But this was really between me and me, not so much between me and the client. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I totally understand because I mean, there's also the, I love that you have this specific way of calculating your rate. For me, a lot of times it was an imposter syndrome thing where I didn't think I was worth it or valuable enough to charge a certain way. In the years since I've become very sassy about that because I learned, you know, in the school of hard knocks uh, to really overvalue yourself and my clients that I actually charge more would treat me better. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting strategy that I learned as well. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So I must say I've done probably 30 or 35 courses since 2017, maybe 40, who knows? 
I'm not counting. Um, but recently, one of my cohort members at um, On Deck told me about this book called Hourly Billing is Nuts is the name of the book. And one of the things that's difficult with uh, freelancers, and I see this both as someone who employs freelancers as someone who was one, is, is this understanding of the value of time between you and your client. And so really what this gentleman does, and, and his work is really first geared towards people who work in digital, either building, programming, and, and copywriting and stuff like that. And really his recommendation is do it on a project basis because it should not be a concern of your client how much time you're going to spend. It's understanding the value that you bring and the delivery of the project over the cost of the hour. So I think that for anybody who's interested in or who's looking to understand better how they should be valuing themselves, how they should be billing their clients, I really recommend you check it out. I am so on board with you. I stopped hourly many years ago and will never look back, although I still have clients that really want that. Um, But just the time it takes to manage and track your hours. It's like uh, exhausting and tedious and adds hours on itself. Um, And so I think it actually is the better deal for the client. I really want to dive into it. Sounds like you're a graduate of uh, Seth Godin's Alt MBA, which I have really considered uh, and looks like a really interesting Do it. Did you like it? So good. Oh my God. Cool. Yes. I am alumni um, Alt MBA 14 and it was one of the best things that I ever did. And it totally happened because of a podcast. See, no that's way. the beauty of podcasts. Yeah. So I heard, I think it was his first or second interview with Tim Ferriss because Seth is a big Tim um, guest. And I was listening to Tim very, very regularly. Not so much at the moment, but that's because I have more time at home. So not as much time to listen to him. And, and that's where he mentioned the course the first time. And I, it, it stayed at the back of my mind. But what first came through is that he was asked what were, he, what were his favorite books and he was very adamant that there were six or seven books that everyone should read. And he also recommended that we should get the audio version as well and listen to it a few times. It was a book by Benjamin and Ross Zander. I want to say it's called The Art of Possibilities. Uh, and I completely fell in love with it. And I think it's because I was so, he was, sometimes I'm very dutiful. You tell me what to do, I do it. If you tell me this, these six books you have to read, I read them. And then when I realized that these were the best books that I'd read in a very long time, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and check out that guy that told me to read those books. I also really gave a lot of my time to it. So I did about 25 hours of, of, of studying over the four weeks of that sprint. And I've made some great friends. What were some of the most interesting takeaways that you would say from that? Like, what, how did it change you? So first of all, the most important thing I learned is that we can collaborate and create meaningful fantastic relationships with people over zoom or over phone i think that within the space of less than a week the group that i was the student group that i was a part of became very tight-knit and because we had to work so heavily to figure out prompts that we really did not really understand at the beginning it really broke down any barriers that we had between us and we had a wonderful sort of collaboration experience which really set me up for the work that I did later on because I, my clients have not been in the same city as me since I've started consulting. And so I've been working on Zoom since the old MBA. Um, and it feels stupid that I only invested in Zoom last year, but that's fine. <laughs> I really should have seen this one coming. So I think that was a massive, massive, massive takeaway. That collaboration piece, you can do it from afar. Just look at the person on the other side. The second most important thing that the old MBA does is that they really follow a coaching approach. 
So it's really left to the group and the individuals to do the work. And when they come with questions, ask them questions so that they find the answers themselves. And that was really interesting and very challenging at first. And all of the Akumbo workshops that have been built um, so like the marketing seminar, the story skills workshop and others, they really follow that coaching approach. So without knowing that was one of the several introductions that I had to coaching that led me to so many sort of aha moments. Cause when someone asks you a meaningful question that sends you into your mind to really look for an answer that you wouldn't have come across otherwise, you can have deeper transformation because it's intrinsic. And so I think that was, that's really a course that set, set me on a different path. Very wise. Uh, agree. I know it can be difficult to deploy that Socratic method as well. Sometimes when you know the answer uh, or yeah. you think, you know, the answer. So that's very cool. It's when you used to say Socratic method, because when I was a teenager, what I did want to study was philosophy. So it's interesting that it's come really full circle that, you know, I'm now um, coaching and that I really do love this as an approach. It's so powerful and it's so genuine. And one of the um, sort of key takeaways of, you know, studying and, and, and working towards becoming a certified coach is that we oftentimes have this imposter syndrome. I have to know more. I have to be more. But then to really be good, what you need to, what you need to be is the same as what you need to be when you exercise mindfulness is that you need to be present. You need to really have deep listening at all levels. So that means eyes, ears, you know, uh, visceral reactions, pay attention to what arises in your body and be curious, like have a curious lens, follow your curiosity and, and let yourself be led by what emerges in the moment. That sounds like podcast I've seen. <laughs> so. That does. I was looking at you thinking that. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of what I'm curious about, that's something I really want to ask because that profound uh, book recommendation really impacted you. What would be your own book recommendations that have really impacted your life that a listener might be able to benefit from? Ah, that's so interesting. Without the shadow of a doubt, I would say that this book, The Art of Possibility um, by Benjamin and Ross Zander is, is certainly my top five. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary book. And most important, it's cool if you get the Kindle, it's cool if you get the paperback, but do get the audio because Benjamin Zender is, is a conductor. And so it's beautifully spoken, beautifully read, and he brings classical music into it. And it just, it's, it's a really, it's a very um, experiential, um, it's an experiential book for sure. What was it about the art of possibility that like really struck a chord and rung true with you that, that really inspired you? I'll tell you one example that I think is a beautiful, beautiful practice that we can all try. So um, in, in that chapter, it's called um, giving an A. Benjamin Zender talks about a difficult rehearsal with a cellist, if I'm correct, and leading the cellist to quit. And he realizes that in his short tempered, his manner, he wasn't listening to that person who wasn't available to make a specific rehearsal. And so across the chapter, he takes the approach of giving someone an A in advance and making this a practice because he is the, he's, he wasn't just the um, conductor for the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, but also the youth Philharmonic Orchestra. And so the idea is that he asked all of his students to write themselves a letter, giving themselves an A and explaining why they are giving themselves an A. And 
sort of back uh, post-dating it by X amount of time. And so the idea is that instead of saying that or anticipating the bad, I guess that this goes towards neuroplasticity and, and, and paying attention to the good, he's offering us the possibility of conditioning ourselves to seeing possibility of success and also going into the details of what that meant, how did you, and sort of almost, almost to Martha Beck's point of, you know, living backwards anticipating all of the ways in which you can get yourself to the A. Can you imagine how different your life is if you imagine and give yourself an A, I am going to do well. I know my intention is to do good on this project, on this relationship, on this thing. And starting from the step, from from that premise that I am going to do good instead of I'm going to mess it up. And seeing the result from his students was overwhelming, which is how it became part of the of the work. And I think the second practice that I think was the most incredible is he talks about telling the we story. And I actually incorporated that to a couple of my um, writings as well, but he talks about we as a capital W capital E. So really not seeing yourself from this independent soul individual point of view, but if you put yourself as part of the we, so instead of saying, what do I want to see happen here? To say, what do we want to see happen here? And suddenly you're part of, as opposed to it's me against you, right? And he tells a lot of compelling and really sweet stories that illustrate the point that when we tell that we story with a capital W, capital E, and we take into each other into account, we partner, we collaborate to go towards something instead of thinking only of our own goals. And that's, I think, a very powerful practice, particularly in times that we're really divided. So if, you know, if within your country, within your city, within your state, people are not agreeing on politics and stuff, instead of saying, what do I want to see happen here? Think of your neighbor. Is this really someone that you completely disagree with? Probably not. Do you have a lot in common with them? Probably not always. Um, but so what do we want to see happen for us rather than me over you? I can see why you, you love that book and you articulated it really well. Then I would probably say um, anything by Thich Nhat Hanh. So Thich Nhat Hanh is a, is a Zen Buddhist ma- master. He's based in France. He's um, exiled from Vietnam. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in, in 1967 and Everything he's written that I've read, I've probably got only about 15 of his books. He's written, I think, about 100 are extraordinary. So right now I'm reading Fear, which is one of his seminal books. But if you're curious about mindfulness, try The Miracle of Mindfulness, which he's very, very um, known for. And then he has several tiny little books. There's How to Love, How to Walk, How to Eat, How to Relax. And there's one called True Love, which I think is exceptional. But they're really like tiny short reads with illustrations. And I have to say they're really wonderful and then for anybody who's about to make a change or they're let's say that they're like me before they're managing themselves and managing a change they want to do and they're not sure how to navigate it one of the best things I did in my in all of my life is um, to work with a book a book called creative visualization by Shakti Gawain and so there's a few meditations and visualization in, in there But I found that at the end of the book, 
there's a portion called goal setting. And I owned the book in London. I moved to New York and it's only in Paris <laughs> six years later that I actually did that portion because it looked like hard work, to be honest. And, um, and it was. So I, I think it took me about two and a half or three hours to go through that section on goal setting. Because really what she did, um, she, she passed away a few years ago. What she did was so clever. She really um, makes you write a lot and ask you to rewrite, bullet point, rewrite. So your um, 10-year goal, your five-year goal, your two-year goal, your one-year goal, your life goals. And it's across a panel of different areas of your life. And what happens is after a while, um, because you're writing so much, I guess that your sensor, if we talk in Freudian terms, drops off a little bit. And that's, I remember it's when I did this on a Saturday afternoon in Paris on my gray sofa that I still own, that I saw under my pen, the words appear that I wanted to become a meditation teacher. And I had no idea that this had never come up in my conscious life. Um, so it's, it's really worth uh, revisiting goal setting, whether you do it with her. Deepak Chopra has many methods to do goal setting. Um, certainly Tony Robbins and other coaches do too. So let yourself freely try any method that comes across. Um, I have a post I can send you a link to about goal settings. Um, I do think it's one of the best things we can do for ourselves. Really go and find the motivations and, and get clear on, on what our purpose is. And then it's easier to actually achieve things. So I was chatting about this actually with a, with another um, podcaster who's, who's become a friend, uh, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. So what I've developed over the past few years as someone who was obviously studying as well and reading in the morning and, and doing morning pages and that kind of stuff, um, I've started to just do, to write a list of all of the things that I really like doing in my morning routine. And at the end of, you know, the, I get up, I make coffee and I sit down and I start writing. And at the end of my writing, I take what I know okay, I can do right now. Like what are the three things that I'm going to be able to do right now? And then the rest I'll tick off by the next morning. So it's not, I'm not imposing everything on myself. Uh, I'll see how the day goes, but I know that I'm going to start my day with, you know, probably three or four out of 12 or 13 things that I think I wish to do every day. So I think it means I can track myself. So, oh, I really have not done I have not studied or I have not written or I have not done X, Y, Z. If I notice I haven't ticked it two or three days, so I'll force myself to bring this back in because it's important to me. So that's the way I manage the morning routine without trapping myself under the weight of too much time spent because certainly that's, that's difficult. Things eroded for me when I did the goal setting repeatedly following different methods. Really, there are at any time 10 to 15 on a long-term life list, if you could imagine it to be that. And some are going to get crossed off and they're going to get replaced by others. And, and I try not to focus on, on any more than that. In terms of the goals, what I've noticed is that I try to introduce them as affirmations in the morning, as a vision board, a massive vision board. <laughs> it's right there in the corner of my room. And the reason why I did that is because Instead of focusing on the goal, sometimes I just have to focus on the day-to-day, -day, setting the bills, working with clients. But I have noticed that my decision-making is different if I reaffirm the larger goals that I want to achieve. Because I may pay attention on an email that comes across, something that comes across in conversation. I'm going to be stepping towards them in a way that I probably wouldn't if I weren't, if I wasn't 
looking at them or speaking them regularly. So I think that's one of the ways in which my inner radar, if you wish, is more naturally going towards them rather than feeling that they're, you know, it's combating different priorities. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. I think that's wonderfully put. Um, and yeah, I should add that I love goals. And I think my favorite thing about goal setting is I've set a lot of goals for myself and they've come true in the most unexpected ways. And I found that it's best like for me, when it comes to vision boards and, and that kind of thing, if I set the goal and then forget that I ever set it. So I'm not focusing on the absence of it tends Mm. to be when it comes to fruition a lot of times, or maybe that's just instead of like beating myself up that I haven't. Um, Mm. And there might be something like that with mindfulness and meditation, like focusing on the absence puts you farther away, if that makes sense. It does. So I want to tell you, it's really funny because um, Martha Beck is a one, I should actually add Martha Beck's books on the list of best books to read because she's, first of all, she's one of the funniest writers I've ever come across. Damn, I love her. Um, and I mean, I, you not everyone may love her, but I mean, she makes me giggle so much. Um, what she says is when you look at your vision board, she says, I quit at the end and just walk away, forget it ever happened and just quit and just, and just get on. Um, but you just reminded me, it was in her book, I think, called Steering by Starlight. Um, and I was I noticed that yesterday because I was leading a, a loving kindness meditation online. And um, sometimes I, I use the Kindle and I, I do screen grabs. If anything sort of um, feels like it could become relevant or is relevant for research uh, when I teach. And I reminded myself of this passage. So in the beginning of that book, she she talks about loving kindness and relates it to what she calls living backwards. And she talks about a number of her clients who do a daily visualization of 10 minutes and getting themselves in the, in the feeling state of the goal they want to reach and saying, I'm not going to tell you that I know how it works because she can't necessarily explain it, but really sort of inhabiting the feeling in the body, not just the, because not everybody visualizes with images, let it be said. But really discovering the feeling state of what is it like to embody that that goal that that you're seeking and to do it over a month. And she said it just brings the most extraordinary, um, extraordinary results. And she was linking this to um, studies on loving kindness meditation, um, specifically done on monks who really have that strong kindness and compassion practice and who have longer telomeres and and other sort of developed brain functions that come from one could say this embodied state feeling state that can come when you practice loving kindness over time is that a practice you've tried before i'm really interested in loving kindness and i just love what you just said um i actually learned more after having april on the show our mutual friend april davila i don't know if you caught her episode i did Um, it was so good but i'm curious yeah like if you could elaborate i i know a little bit but for anyone who's listening who maybe doesn't understand and i'm still still grappling and grasping exactly what it means but do you want to elaborate on loving kindness meditation yeah, it's a very, very important practice for me because that's the one that really helped me become a meditator. Because one day I, so I was in Thailand on holidays and it was the second time I think that I'd been to that place. And I had never been to a meditation class. I had been to yoga classes for 15 years, but never meditation. And and so I, I love the beach. I don't know what to say. I don't want to apologize for that. It's my thing. I love reading. I love whatever. 
And so I never went to any of the free meditation classes that were offered in this gorgeous wellness retreat. Um, but that, that one day, and I didn't look at the name was like, huh, what's loving kindness. And I walked in and, and the teacher was very nice. And at the end of the practice, he said, imagine how powerful it would be if someone were to do this every day. I don't know why, but I thought to myself, challenge accepted. I don't, I, and I was so geeky. Um, and so the next morning I started. So I walked back to my room. I didn't go and talk to the teacher. I didn't ask questions. This is a Wi-Fi free resort. So I didn't Google it. I didn't seek teachers. I just replicated what he had taught us that day. And so loving kindness is the repetition of um, phrases and their wishes, but don't think of wishes as in wishful thinking. It's more like gift giving. Like when you're, when you're sending a card to someone saying, you know, may you have a very happy new year, you know, that kind of sentiment. And so you start with yourself in the tradition, then you go to another. So it could be a loved one, uh, a benefactor, someone who's done you good, who's really helped you in some way. And then you move to a neutral person, which is a very, very important category, I think. Um, someone you barely know, someone whose name you may not even know. And then you go towards other categories. It could be someone difficult, then someone towards whom you were difficult. And then our teacher asked us to come back to ourselves and bring a smile to our lips. And it was like, it's weird. <laughs> uh, but eyes closed and to go back and say the same phrases again. And then we finished with a group and then all beings around the world. And so what loving kindness is, is two things. First, it's one of the few meditation practices that is not solely going inwards. So you, you, you need to have a, a self-practice to understand what loving kindness is. But you are going to be spending a lot of time sending these well wishes, those sort of directing those phrases towards others, including people you don't know, people that annoy you. And so I want to say that it really helps you cultivate a different um, relationship, even without having to do anything towards these people by spending the time to really deeply see them in your mind's eye as you send the wishes. The second thing that it is, which I heard um, spoken by Daniel Goleman, um, the, the psychologist who worked with the Dalai Lama, he called these phrases psychoactive. And I think that's a very interesting thing to hear for people who are not into meditation and who think, yeah, whatever, saying well wishes, what does that do? Essentially, it's the combination between the attention, so that's the mindfulness piece, bringing your attention to the recipient and to the phrases, because your mind is going to wander the same as it does when you're trying to watch your breath. So bringing your attention back every time is very powerful. So you're reconnecting to that sense, to the person that you're directing it to. And you're crossing that with the intention, the intention of wishing someone else well or yourself. And of course, you can imagine that if you do this over time, then you start developing a different kind of relationship to others and yourself. So do you remember that, that sentence? I heard it from Tony Robbins, but I don't know who said it. Where attention goes, energy flows. So I think that, I guess that's what I was hearing when our teacher said, imagine how powerful it would be if someone were to do this every day. Because he didn't tell us what the power was. But I went away and I did it every day for six months. And then I started to see some shifts in myself. 
And the way that I like to talk about it is <laughs> I became a better roommate for myself. You know, when, you know, yeah, you have it. We all have an inner voice. A lot of us will know that if we personalize this inner voice and made it a human being in the same room, most of us would not probably want to live with them. Tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, and, and over time, actually, you know, this inner voice became a roommate I'd actually live with. Someone who wasn't, you know, um, beating me up when I had done something wrong that would see possibilities. That was more open, more spacious, certainly kinder. So these are some of the, of the benefits from loving kindness. But I need to tell you, um, and I can send you this if you want for the show notes, there's an amazing article written by um, a professor called Emma Seppala. And it's uh, for Psychology Today. And she went through the trouble of going to find 17 different studies that show the benefits of loving kindness. And uh, they're very wide ranging, uh, increases empathy, compassion, um, social connection. So all things that we all need right now but also things like reverses biological aging. <laughs> so I'm like, guys, you know, don't go to Botox, just practice loving kindness, 12, 15 minutes every day. Whatever you're doing is working, obviously. So for those of us who are on video, I'm going to have to get into this. <laughs> yeah. And I have the story, the, the studies to back it up. It's, it's nice. Very cool. What about in terms of like focus, productivity, um, I don't know, any other benefits that, that you've caught on to outside of uh, obviously these incredible lists that you just rattled off? Sure. So, I mean, loving kindness specific, specifically, what I think that it did, and I'm sure it was also um, enhanced by the mindfulness practice. Um, it helped connect to other people in a way that I hadn't before. I must say, I was probably always a nice person, but I didn't have a very good Uber rating when I lived in New York. <laughs> I was really stressed. I was really late. There was lots of really bad drivers. So, you know, I don't know if anyone hearing me is going to um, recognize themselves in that. I think that some of the benefits of mindfulness over time as any muscle that you flex is that you find more spaciousness and more presence. And when you're present, you notice what happens around you. But with loving kindness, I started just seeing people differently and it manifested it manifested for me in a way when I started seeking people's eyes when I was walking down the street. So when I was crossing someone's path, I was seeing them. I was looking at them. And oftentimes I would smile or nod or which I noticed that was a strange behavior. And, um, and I felt a sense of kinship, I think, with people I had no idea. Um, I, di I didn't know from, you know, the cashier and my local supermarket to the Uber or a taxi driver. Um, and I think the cultivation of, of loving kindness towards the neutral person is a really important thing. And I really loved reading in, in um, so Sharon Salzberg is a very um, famous professor, a teacher of mindfulness and loving kindness in, in the U.S. And, um, and she was saying that oftentimes when you choose a neutral person and you work on this neutral person over a few days, over a retreat, you start to develop you know, a, a, a feeling tone for them. And she was joking. She saw someone light up when she mentioned, I don't know, the accountant. And she said, what happened? And she said, oh, he was my neutral person last week. <laughs> and I've suddenly seen that happen. So I think this is, this is something that's uh, very interesting. Now, about your question on productivity, it's a word I don't really like much. Actually, I, I wrote a, <laughs> a really long blog post last week about that. Um, 
I think I want to try and step away from productivity and really be cultivating that presence and looking at what's really important. Um, so I'm sure you've noticed that we don't do everything on our to-do list every day and that there are notions like, you know, what's urgent, but not essential, what's essential, but not urgent, and really trying to figure out what are the things that you really need to do on that day to move the needle. Um, but I no longer want to chase productivity um, because I think that it tends to not bring the best out of me because I then, I pile up more work on my own shoulders and I probably wouldn't do that to other people, but I do it on myself. Um, but I heard some really interesting, um, interesting studies as to how we feel about the work we've done. And particularly in, in the West, we tend to connect. I can't remember the source of that, actually. Um, we tend to connect on the work that we did on the day, but we tend to forget what we've done the day before. And so yesterday, for example, I led this um, class where we, I was asking people to connect to um, the good, the good that you would do, the good that we've done, whether that was 10 years ago or yesterday, and to learn to develop a habit to recognize what we've done that's good in order not to overwhelm ourselves by continuously trying to do more because you felt like you haven't done so much. But by never acknowledging all of the great things I did last week, I feel like I'm always chasing myself otherwise. Do you see what I mean? Does that, is that something that you've come across as well? Oh, absolutely. And I'm completely on board with you. Um, I think I speak to productivity because it's a lure for a lot of people with meditation um, because they're like, why would I do nothing so that I can you know, do more? But I would say from a compass perspective, that's where it's really handy. Not so much that you can suddenly do more, but that you know the right things to do. So you're not spinning your wheels on the wrong things. Yeah. And I think this is something that April talks about um, as well in, in writing. She talks about right action. So I think that in, in, in slowing yourself down and, and spe- spending a few minutes uh, watching your breath, the sensations in the body, your mind, or, or any other kind of meditation you do, you start to become more acquainted with yourself and you are effectively, you're going to emerge most likely refreshed. Of course, there are exceptions and times of anxiety and stress can't always be escaped by meditation. Um, but in normal conditions, for a regular practitioner, you're going to find that you are refreshed. And what happens when we're refreshed is that we are more purposeful. We take decisions with more ease. And also we understand ourselves better. And if you, on the one hand side, you are more present, you're able to spend the right amount of attention and time on the people in and around you. It's bound to be a change in your effectiveness, regardless of the kind of work that you do. So I think that Cultivating pauses as well is incredibly important. I'm a very big fan of the Pomodoro method. Um, so whether you use it for the 25 or the 50 minutes and then take a five or 10 minute break. Um, my friends laugh at me because I love, so I work from home and I love to tidy the house when I'm done with work. So I'll do 25 minutes or 50 minutes of work and then I'll go and do something around the house. I'm very domestic in that way, <laughs> but it makes me feel really good about accomplishing something that's not work-related because otherwise I feel like it's, I'm missing that sort of life work balance. And also that's getting me to, to get up. So understanding what are the things that refresh you outside of meditation is also something that I would suggest to bring in through the rest of your day 
to let's say supplement yourself. And there are some lovely, lovely other things you can do, like um, adding a bell uh, once or twice or um, however many times a day to just stop, take three deep breaths, get up, walk around the room and sit back down. And people, for example, in advertising um, who do a lot of big brainstorms, they know that even a five minute break, walking around the room and sitting in another desk or another seat is going to change your perspective internally and, of course, externally. So extremely wise. I agree with you. I would have these uh, jobs sometimes in corporate that just wanted you to be at this like very blank desk all day and you couldn't leave. And I found it so extremely stifling and there's science to back up how that's actually not ideal for productivity. So, (laughs) or, or whatever word you want to use for it, but I, it's okay. You don't have to cancel your word. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I don't know that I, there is a different word, like, cause there's productivity, right. But then there's I guess like peak performance might be a word or, or just like the zone, um, that kind of thing. And, and sometimes like it is interesting and counterintuitive that doing less can actually create more results, which is something we've discussed on the show. Yeah. I think that when it comes to, so when I think peak performance, I, yeah, I wrote about that actually earlier this year. And that's one of the things that I, one of the discoveries I've enjoyed the most, um, cause for me, it happened reconnecting with a, or with, with swimming. And one of the things I noticed is removing friction helps peak performance. And obviously being in the present moment, being really feeling the feelings and being with the task that I was doing helped me really be in the zone. So it was really, there was um, an interesting correlation between that mindfulness um, and really that sort of sensorial um, element as well. And that's, that's really wonderful. But I want to plug in a book of um, a, a lady called um, Dr. Amishi Jada. I'm in the middle of reading. That's really, really interesting. And I bring it up because a lot of people are going to come to meditation like I did, um, because there's something that probably needs fixing in their life. I mean, that's not what I realized at the time, but I definitely needed um, the help that I got from, from loving kindness and mindfulness. And um, she has written a, a new book called Peak Mind, and she is a researcher um, who works on attention. She's got a great, great TED talk. And so she's found after doing a lot of research on sort of elite members of troops in the US, um, firefighters and, and others. And they've come, with a, they've come through with findings that really establish that in order to really see a change in your mindset and your own focus and presence, um, the minimum that she and her team um, noted was 12 minutes a day for four weeks. And it was very interesting because they mixed loving kindness with other mindfulness practices. So they never let go of that sort of compassionate element because it's part not being judgmental toward yourself is something that's important to cultivate as you spend some time in your own mind. But I thought it was really exciting that there was data around this because anything below that was inconclusive. There wasn't a change, not, nothing, nothing major. However, anything above that was incremental. And because they didn't have access to these service members for a long period of time because they deploy, it was critical for them to be able to have a data that would help them sustain as they actually move through with, you know, and, and, and put themselves in a situation where their decision-making skills could mean life and death. So I thought that was a really interesting um, new study that's really, really worth 
um, getting into? For someone who's looking to develop this practice, like how did you get into a daily practice and, and kind of develop that discipline? Um, because I know meditation is uncomfortable, can be uncomfortable in the beginning. So what kind of uh, tips and guides would you give to somebody who's maybe just starting out? So you're familiar with Pavlov's dog? Yeah. Okay. So I, I trick myself into it. <laughs> so um, at the beginning when I, when I, I was living in Paris at the time when I got started and I'm a big coffee lover. I make my own coffee in my, you know, Italian mocha machine. I make my own blend of almond and nut milk. <laughs> so I'm a real nerd. Um, so first I'll, I'll feed the cat and make the coffee and, and go to morning pages. And I really ritualize the way in which I get into meditation. So the way that a phone numbers are written, depending where, which state you live or which country, oftentimes the prefix will be a set numbers and then there'll be another bunch and then another bunch. And a lot of the time when we learn numbers, we look at the prefix and we take it as a given that we know it. We recognize it. And so I sort of approached the day in a similar way. I was like, every day, what I do is I make coffee, I sit, I write my morning pages and I meditate. And that's a given. And I just did not give myself any options to do anything else. But more importantly, I found a spot and I don't change the spot. That doesn't mean that I can't, because right now it's really cold and my spot is next to the window. <laughs> so on occasion, on a Sunday, I may sit somewhere else and put a blanket on my knees. But essentially, by ritualizing the way in which you get to it, it's that same thing as I was saying before, remove friction. Do you want to swing beautifully? Get yourself a swimming cap if you've got long hair like me, because when you put the goggles on and off, it tears your hair off and that's not fun. Try the earplugs, get a swimming costume that fits and that you won't fiddle with. And then suddenly from one day to the next, you'll have a completely different experience. Do the same for your morning. What works for you? Explore fiddle curiously for a few days and then set it the same way as you'd set that prefix and say that's a given that's what I do we're also the way that we speak to our minds is really interesting so if you say oh I meditate every day it's much easier than if you say oh it's really hard to meditate <laughs> so by fixing a routine finding what works and coming back to it every day and just setting yourself up for success when you tell people yeah of course yeah I meditate every day Sometimes it's longer than others, depending on what time I got up, but I still meditate every day. How about you? Tell me how that works for you. Oh, well, I think that's very genius. I mean, for me, it's been a very important meeting. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I was writing before that group, but the meditation is really helpful. Um, sometimes it feels like cheating though, because it's a guided meditation. So I, I'd be curious to do it like without that help. Um, but I've, you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that because there is the morning routine struggle and there's, there's a couple of different boot camps in the business coach world. There's the people who are like, you know, meditate, exercise, write morning pages. And, you know, you've got this whole to-do list of the perfect morning routine, but then does that just actually prolong? Like, by the time you actually sit down to work, it's like noon. Um, I struggle because sometimes I like to just get to work right away and I don't like exercising in the morning. So if I try to implement something like that into my morning routine, I'll just procrastinate on exercise and not get anything done for hours. Um, but usually like what I found is to your point, 
when it comes to any of these things, setting yourself up for success is key. I think a lot of people think they just have to, for example, dive into the gym, right? But if there's a lot more to it than that, there's uh, getting the right running shoes and, and all of that. So I think for any of these routines that you want to pick up, it's okay to be patient with yourself and give yourself a few days to like prep an environment um, that will set you up for success ultimately. And also tweak yeah. what you're doing in the morning because you don't have to do all of the morning routines everybody suggests right? You can ritualize. It will help you to do it, but then let yourself be open to what will serve you in order to make sure that you do continue. Cause that's what I think you and April was saying, right? Installing a habit is you can miss it one day, but not two days in a row. I'm not a morning person. So I think that's why I ritualized the morning meditation because that was harder for me. It's, it felt easier at first to light candles and have a lovely environment, if you've got young kids and stuff, it can be really hard to find any time. And, uh, you know, there's friends of mine that just, you know, they lock themselves up in the bathroom for 10 minutes in the morning because that's the only time that works. Or another one will lie down on the floor and try to practice, you know, mindfulness of breath while her kids are going to sleep. So be playful. It's, it has to work for you. We're not monks. We are householders, as they called it in, in India, right? As long as you live in the world, you have to find ways that it works for you and helps you rather than stresses you out. So wise. I, I love that you say that you're not a morning person because I'm not either. Although I should probably work on my self-definition. And maybe if I say I'm a morning person long enough, it'll manifest. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm a very big sleeper. That's probably more correct. Yeah, like eight, <laughs> nine hours a night minimum. Oh, I love sleep. Don't even get me started. I, I have like a sleep palace of like blackout curtains. And I, I like, yeah, I wanted to retire early just so I'd never have to deal with an alarm again. But do you have any tips for like your sleep <laughs> that you have? You know what? It's so funny you should say that because out of all of the girls who were in my group, uh, there weren't any guys in my, in my, um, in my mentor group uh, with Martha Beck. I think that the one thing that came up for all of us is we don't want to use an alarm. We want to wake up naturally. I think that was one of the biggest thing out of all of these people who are becoming um, coaches. So make your bedroom a space that you sleep in and that you don't work in if you are able to or don't work from your bed. I think that's the first and most important thing. Um, something that I learned later on. And really, it makes a big, 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 big difference. I mean, I very rarely stay in. I'll sleep a lot but you won't find me staying in bed. Huge difference. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out? And you can find me on avm.consulting if you want to find out about coaching and about my consultancy, where I do really work mostly um, with brands and individuals. And then you can look me up on a, um, sorry, anvmulethaler.com where you'll find the podcast out of the clouds, um, mindfulness, writing, um, schedules, and in the near future, hopefully in just a few days, uh, on-demand um, loving kindness classes for anyone who wants to give it a try. So I host um, free classes three times a week and the schedule is available on my website. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned so much today. I can't wait to put this advice into practice. What was your favorite part of the episode? Drop a comment below on YouTube or let us know in the iTunes review. As always, the links to Anne's work are going to be in the show notes. 
And before we sign off today, just a reminder to shoot me an email at hello at moneyselfmade.com if you would like to be entered to win a $50 gift card and submit our feedback form. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, take screenshot, send me a DM on Instagram. I'm at invested.success or you can send it to my email, hello at moneyselfmade.com, and you will be entered to win a $50 gift card. We really appreciate your feedback. Before we sign off, please remember to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube, or hit subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Every time you hit the subscribe button, an angel gets its wings and flies to heaven. This is Elise Walsh with Invested Success signing off, and I will see you next time.